Welcome to the Vandy Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Lee. Our guest today will be George Plaster. We thank our sponsor, Wellspire, Nashville's Learning and Development Center. Wellspire offers personal and professional development opportunities in a beautiful facility in the Gulch neighborhood. Stop by for an event with world-renowned speakers or host an off-site event that will wow your team or your clients. We also thank our co-sponsor, the Well Coffee House, which turns coffee into water and has a mission to bring clean water to the world. Today's news presented by Sutherland and Belk, a Nashville-based injury law firm. Sutherland and Belk is committed to fighting for those who have been injured in car, motorcycle, and truck accidents. Check them out at sbinjurylaw.com. Vanderbilt travels to Auburn for its SEC opener. That is 8 Central on the SEC Network on Wednesday night. The guest line presented by our friends at Bowl and Branch started by Vanderbilt graduates Scott and Missy Tannen. I've slept on their sheets for years. They're amazing. They are also fair trade certified, which means they are made under safe conditions by men and women, treated and paid fairly. Try them for free for a month. You can return them, but you won't want to. Once you get the sheets, try the mattress. That was voted the best mattress of 2018. Go to bowlandbranch.com. That is spelled B-O-L-L. Enter the promo code VANDY and get $50 off your first set of sheets. George Plaster joins us. George, of course, works at Nashville Sports Radio. He is a longtime voice in the radio market. He has done Vanderbilt play-by-play. Basically, I don't know why I'm saying this, because if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know all these things. Anyway, George, welcome to the show. Chris, thank you, and and Happy New Year to you, and Happy New Year to uh, anybody that's out there that ends up listening to this. It has been a good new year, and I have forgotten to mention this. I did tweet this out. The highlight of my new year was, or really of the holiday season, my nephew, who is, I think most people know, walked on to Wyoming and earned a football scholarship. He caught a 52-yard touchdown pass in their bowl game against Georgia State that was all over ESPN. And that was really, I mean, Christmas is always great, and especially Christmas when you have kids. Those are unforgettable, but that was maybe the highlight of my holiday season. Oh, listen, I, when I heard about it, because I saw what you had tweeted out, uh, that, that's just got to be a great feeling. What people you know, probably don't understand at times is the amount of odds that, uh, that an athlete beats to get in that position. Uh, you know, you're, you're pretty good in high school, then – you know, you beat the odds and you get a college scholarship and then you beat some more odds by ending up getting to play. I mean, it's really quite an accomplishment. It, you know, it's the same thing I've told friends of mine that, uh, that end up in professional baseball, that just to get there, you have beaten so many odds. And, you know, oftentimes in the day-to-day frustration of, you know, I'm not hitting well or I'm not doing this well, Sometimes everybody forgets what it took to even, you know, show up and be there. Yeah, and seeing him work from where he was to get to where he's gotten it makes me appreciate those stories even more. And the funny thing is he's he's got a sister uh, who's done the same thing. She has become a preferred walk-on for the Colorado State women's basketball team. They played – at Tennessee about three or four weeks ago, we went to the game in Knoxville. Did not think she was going to get in. They brought her in, I think, with a minute and 14 seconds left, and she sunk a three in Thompson Bowling Arena against the Lady Vols to finish the game. So we were thrilled to see that as well. Man, that's awesome. Yeah, I can see I can see why why that got your attention because that, that's terrific. Yeah, and they're they're both great kids. I mean, I'm I'm close to both of them. So that was the certainly the highlight of my holiday season. I guess the highlight of your holiday season uh, would have been a Josh Donaldson signing, but that's not happened yet. No, but I do think it's going to. He's put out a lot of different stuff. The most recent being that he wants four years, one hundred and ten million. Sounds like the Nats have. I'm not going to say gone away uh, because what I don't want is later this afternoon, Washington signs Josh Donaldson and somebody says, Hmm, they went away. 
but it does sound like from media reports that they have, um, I don't guess the word is moved on, but may not be as hot to trot about him. The Braves, their whole offseason has basically come to a screeching halt as they wait for this because if they sign him, I think they're pretty much done. Either sign Marcelo Zuna as a free agent. I don't believe the Chris Bryant or Francisco Lindor or maybe even the Nolan Arenado rumors, although I do think there's something going on uh, on Arenado, who I think is the most underrated superstar in baseball. Man, I'm a big fan of his. And that was kind of neat when he signed a year ago. That was a very emotional press conference he had. He really wants to be there. But his splits away from Coors are not very good, or they're nothing close to, to what he hits there, which not the first guy to say that about, but that is cause for a little bit of concern there. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's what probably the analytics people and all the research that now goes on, that's what they've got to figure out is, okay, um, how's he done when he's played the Braves in Atlanta? I can give him the answer. He's killed him. <laughs> well, here's hoping the Braves get a third baseman. And I'm assuming people didn't tune into this podcast to hear us talk about the Braves, although you and I enjoy that. So let's talk Vanderbilt sports. And okay, boy, I just feel like the last two or three years has just been here we go again. It's been one thing after another. The, the football seasons have been long and, and tough to cover, other than last year. Basketball has now been in a dry spell for this is going on three seasons in a row, and, and, and the ones before that weren't great. They were just good. When you talk about Vanderbilt, you really, to dissect the present, have to get into the past. And I just started rewinding in my mind, like, how did they get here with with the football coach that they can't afford to fire by everything you and I have heard? I, I think the cost would be eight figures. Uh, yet at the same time, seemingly they cannot trust to hire his own assistants Malcolm Turner appears to have gotten involved, and the quality of the guys he is hiring seem to have ticked up a couple of notches, even though the coaching community views him as dead man walking. So on one hand, you've got the irony of you got this football coach who's very expensive, yet you are trusting a first-year AD to have a big hand in coaching hires, maybe more than you are a 60 year head coach. That seems like only a at Vanderbilt kind of thing. On the other hand, you have basketball, which the Davidson win was a good one. The SMU win would have been another nice one on top of that. They collapsed in that one. We will maybe get to the specifics of that in the mailbag, but this seems like it's going to be another long winter. Vanderbilt will go to Auburn on Wednesday night. I do not expect that to end well. The fan base is just basically in depression waiting for baseball. And I just keep thinking about, okay, how, how did it get to this point? And you and I were talking off podcast. And we, we brought up the point that David Williams hung on too long, probably should have been gone years ago. I think you had heard some things that, that indicated they were going to let him go. That never happened. Let's just kind of rewind to the, the last few years of the David Williams era and unpack some things. I guess the question we both have is what happens if Vanderbilt makes a move earlier? Well, let's start with this. The only reason that I can really mentally remember the time frame is a trip that I took that was so much fun. Uh, former basketball players, Will Purdue, Steve Reese, and then me, took a trip to uh, Omaha. It was kind of a week of Ferris Bueller's day off. Before Will got there, Steve Reese and I went uh, and saw Walker Bueller dominate TCU to get Vandy in the finals. And then we went off to Kansas City for a couple of days and watched Mookie Betts, who had just come up to the Red Sox, have a monster series against a really good Kansas City Royals team that was the defending world champion at the time. Anyway, that was 
on or about June the 20th of 2015 for about three to six months before David Williams would be stepping down as Vanderbilt athletic director. And, you know, I had heard a lot of this from people inside McGugan, had heard it all over what I'll call the Vanderbilt community. And in retrospect, that may have been what probably needed to happen. David was at that point, I'm going to guess, 66. Uh, He had not been in great health. He had had uh, a pretty bad health scare. Um, I want to say before that, uh, although I don't have the date of that uh, particularly good, but he had not been in great health. And, you know, I think they had gotten to a point where they were going to need an athletic director who could put in monster hours. And I just don't think David health wise was able to do that. And I would describe probably the last three years of him as an athletic director as kind of treading water. And the problem is when you're treading water in the sec, you're probably falling behind. I think one of the great fears that I've got right now for me, growing up here, Memorial Gym was the place. This is before the Titans and the Predators. And Memorial Gym was a 15,581 sellout every night when I was growing up. And it was a wonderful place to be. It was a real snake pit for the visitor. And it, it was a dream of mine back then to be able to do games in that gym. And when that dream was realized in the mid-90s as a play-by-play voice, Memorial Gym still was really a special place. I go in there right now, and I'm just sad every time I go in when I look at 3L and 3F, which are the the balconies that Clyde Lee built, and there's nobody up there. And one of my real fears – is that Memorial Gym is turning into Dudley Field, where the only time you see good crowds is when Tennessee comes in or Kentucky comes in. You know, a year ago, I went to the Kentucky game, and it was probably 80% Kentucky. And, you know, I got to thinking about Coach Skinner, Coach Newton, obviously, who, who I was so close with, Eddie Fogler, those were the golden ages of Vanderbilt basketball. They've lost that. And I I don't know how they get it back. Uh, It's going to be a while. You know, it's pretty obvious with this team, they are going to go through long droughts in games where they don't score. And, you know, it's happened. It happened in the Davidson victory, even though they played really well for the first 25 minutes. You know, then against SMU, they collapsed late, didn't score for who knows how long, and, and lost the game in overtime. But I think their inability to really get out of neutral during that three- or four-year period has sort of led them where they are now. And that's unfortunate, but I think that's the way it is. Yeah, I want to take that thought and – kind of circle to something and then circle back around to, to hoops. And this, this really ties into it, but. When you do all this circling, <laughs> will we be on I-440 at that point? <laughs> Let's not ask Pasquale Perez for directions wherever we are. No, but I understand better why he had that problem <laughs> now that I've driven on some of those roads. Right. I can see where it could happen. Well, 440 is in need of some repair right now. So that, that may be the, the adequate uh, analogy there, but. What I'm thinking, this feels a whole lot like that mid-90s, early 2000s period where they just weren't very good in anything. You saw declining attendance, and that was in basketball and, of course, in football. This just, to me, feels a lot like that era. Am I alone in that? No, because, you know, I was front and center stage at that point. And it was a real disappointment to me to see how far it had fallen. All team, I think two of my three years was, um, you know, efficiency. And the team that just finished 
few weeks ago in Knoxville reminded me so much of that. They couldn't do the simplest things on offense. They were pretty good on defense back then, but you know, 10 to 13 points was kind of the max they were ever going to score. And then in basketball, what they were was kind of a high NIT, but not really quite good enough to be NCAA. It wasn't awful, but it wasn't good enough to be where everybody would want it to be. And it got a little stale. It just was a disappointing time. And, and by the time my time was over, I was almost relieved to be out of it because it's really hard to be a talk show host and a play-by-play announcer when the product that you're having to talk about a lot is either really bad or just kind of stuck in neutral. And, and during that three-year period, that's pretty much what it was. Yeah, that sounds familiar. But <laughs> in all seriousness, I just keep thinking, somebody gave me this analogy one time that if you run your car into a ditch, it's not necessarily that you turn the wheel 90 degrees and went straight into it. You can just turn it a degree or two the wrong direction and eventually it will veer into the ditch. And I, I think I look at Vanderbilt Athletics as, as a series of, of big turns and small turns. And I kind of go back. The, the reason I keep going back to David. Let's set the stage for basketball now, okay? They, they let Kevin Stallings go. Bryce Drew comes in in 2016. That first year goes well. They go to the NCAA tournament. The next two years did not go so well. Of course, last year they lost 20 in a row to end the season. He gets fired. Obviously, you can't talk about Jerry Stackhouse as being hired without Malcolm Turner. And, of course, Malcolm comes in 11 months ago, makes Stackhouse his hire. A lot of people question at the time, is that a hire they need to make right now? Not that people had a problem, I guess, with them removing Bryce Drew, but there was a timing. he just gotten there. Might have been good for him to spend another year in that chair, kind of canvassing coaching candidates, that sort of thing. There was some questioning at the time where they should have even made the change. Again, I can't fault his reasoning, but again, you, you go back a little bit. The facilities have not been improved. That job is is losing some appeal. You have the 20-game losing streak. You had the, the talent deficit that you have now. The landscape for that hire for anybody who took that job over was just not going to be good. No, look, at at the point that that Stackhouse got hired, you know, would I have taken that gamble? Maybe not, because there were probably established coaches on the collegiate level who had, you know, been through recruiting cycles uh, that probably wanted the job. I don't know. Here's one of the things that I think they've been missing now for a little while. Vanderbilt basketball had always been able to hang its hat on the fact that they had people that could shoot. And people probably get tired of hearing me talk about Coach Newton, uh, who I happen to think is the, the finest person that I've ever dealt with in athletics. I also think one of his biggest strengths was just his simple common sense. Coach Newton had common sense like nobody I've ever seen. And one of the things he told me one time was how vital it was to be able to go up into Kentucky and, in essence, almost take Kentucky's leftovers. If you think about it back then, you know, they got a Phil Cox, they got a Scott Droud, they got a Barry Goheen, they got a Frank Cornette. All of them could shoot the daylights out of it. Certainly the first three could. Uh, Frank was more obviously of an inside power forward, but that is a missing piece of what is being vital in college basketball these days. But at some point you got to score. They don't have any shooters. They don't have the ability to spread a court. And, you know, in, in when coach Newton finally got it going, what really got it going was the development of will Purdue. But at the point that Will developed, 
he had four guys who could sit on the perimeter and just knock the daylights out of it. And they don't have that. And I think it's a missing ingredient to Vanderbilt basketball right now that they don't appear over the last three, four years, whatever, to have used any of that. And somebody needs to go back into history and see, okay, how have they skinned this cat? Now, you know, Stackhouse or whoever might say, George, you know, all your stuff is 80 million years ago. But I'll counter with this. At times, and in particular, toward the end of last year, they couldn't hit the broadside of a barn. And more and more, I think Coach Newton had the equation. I'll always give him the benefit of the doubt. Because like I said, um, I, I have him on a pedestal with virtually no other people I've ever come in contact with. But I think he had it right. Back to the small turns analogy I made it a minute ago. One of those was exactly what you said about the shooters, but here's one that also doesn't get talked about. I think back to a lot of the Vanderbilt teams that have been the better ones in the last 30 years. They almost always had a really good big man. They had Will Perdue and then Frank Cornette for a year. Kevin Stallings had A.J. Ogilvie. He also had Matt Frege, who was kind of a different kind of a big man, but that counted for a lot too. They had Festus Azili. Damian Jones and that's another thing we think about the shooting because that's obvious but they don't have anything resembling a big man I mean I guess they did have Luke Cornett and they played a little different style with him and now he's in the league so even Bryce's one good team had a big man on it that's the other little turn that they made it's not having shooters and not having big men those were always the two ingredients in Vanderbilt's better basketball teams Chris, I will contend, and and I told Kevin this a week before he left Vandy, that revisionist history was going to be a lot kinder to Kevin Stallings than the way it all ended up when it ended. You know, I, I, Kevin and I are very good friends, and I'm very appreciative of his friendship, and I know it's the, the other way, vice versa. The, the part where he got misunderstood a lot, when he would meet friends of mine in certain settings, they'd come away going, wow, he's not anything like what I thought he was. And I can remember one of, the, one of the cool things that went on. Dan Cage helped put together an alumni weekend. This has probably been about five years ago, five, six years ago. And as part of it, they had asked me and Willie both to get involved in supplying a lot of names of, of, you know, former players to get them to come back for this alumni weekend. And they played a game at 11 o'clock in the morning. I did the PA on it. And then uh, the, the university held a like a luncheon afterwards that was very cool. And then the Nashville Sounds were nice enough to give me a suite in the new ballpark. It was the first year of the new stadium. And it was sort of a who's who of Vanderbilt basketball um, of, of years gone by. Will Purdue, Steve Reese, Glenn Clem. I think Mike Rhodes was there. Billy McCaffrey and Willie and Kevin Anglin were there. Kevin held court that night, partly because he looked up and he said, I know more about these players on this baseball field than anybody because Jacob has played against all of them. Well, anyway, it, it turned into kind of a, 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 you know, will Purdue beat the press kind of deal that was very off record. And, you know, George is right. He's not anything like what the public perception of him is. And I wish Kevin had shown more people that side of him because to be fair, the Kevin Stallings era was a hell of a lot better than people have given it credit for. And these days, Kevin Stallings looks pretty good. Yeah, they say that good is the enemy of great. I guess sometimes, I don't know if this is the right way to say it, great is the enemy of terrible because Kevin was good, never could get to great for long, and now they're terrible or have been for two or three years now. And I always wondered 
just speaking of just little turns, if Kevin just could have been nicer and more sociable to people, I wonder if he'd not still be the coach because I think that's really what did him in. I think that inside McGugan, people got sick of dealing with him. For whatever reason, when he felt threatened or whatever, or just didn't want to deal with people, he just didn't seem very nice to people. And uh, people say, well, they should have dealt with that and, and whatever. But the truth is, when you have to work with somebody day in and day out, doesn't treat you well that takes a toll and just the little undercurrents that I heard I sense that that was a big part of what went on well I'll also put the other sports analogy out there first of all as a lot of people know my dealings with Kevin were a lot different than that he treated me great over a long period of time he also knew that he could uh, run things up the flagpole with me and I would give him honest advice about certain things. And he also was a huge help to me during one of the really rough times of my life when I was getting sued by a big corporation. I'll never forget how much help he was and and how good his advice was uh, during that time. But here's the bottom line that I would get to. Jeff Fisher and Barry Trotz also got to this point um, in Nashville sports. I think in this day and time, you're not going to see any more of these Mike Krzyzewski deals where a guy stays at a school almost 40 years. Uh, I think when you get into the 10 to 15 year range, it just starts getting stale. And, you know, I don't know why that is. I don't know all of the stuff. It'd be interesting to get all three of them in a room and and get their feelings about it because I think all three of them are better coaches than they've gotten credit for. Uh, but I think it just reaches a point in this day and time where when you get to about 15 years, uh, the shelf life's about over. Well, and the same thing happened to the guy he replaced. Jamie Dixon did things long-term at Pitt that I don't think anybody's ever done. But And Gary Parrish says this all the time. Just after a while, things get stale. I think, I don't know if you have to be the level of Tim Corbin or Nick Saban, but that's just a general principle. Sometimes just being consistently good is the worst thing a coach can do because then you raise the bar for expectations. You think, oh, if, if this guy just did this a little bit better or whatever, then the program could go to greater heights. And I think that's what they thought with Bryce Drew. We know how that turned out. I think the other thing that really hurt Kevin when well, he kind of took a two-year hiatus to watch his son play a lot of baseball, which is a dad I don't blame him for, but as a guy who's coaching a program at that level, you just can't do. I also wonder if Kevin had handled that differently for a couple of years because you remember the team that he wound up with not long after the Jenkins-Azeli or tenure was the team with Rod Odom and Parker and, and a bunch of guys who mostly couldn't shoot. Um, I wonder if that had gone differently, again, how much that might have changed things. Well, I'm not sure I'm going to agree about the two-year hiatus uh, of watching Jacob play baseball. Now, I will will absolutely tell you that the percentage of our conversations over the years that would ultimately get to Jacob's baseball was incredible. And Kevin knew that I had a lot lot of fun being able to talk that stuff with him. Kevin talked baseball. You know, I I probably ought to ask him to be a a baseball expert uh, in a talk show setting. I think what it did do a little bit was relax him because he had another outlet. you know, for things to happen. Jacob's story is really pretty amazing because, you know, a year ago, he probably got to spend four or five months in a row on the Pirates roster, on their 25-man roster on the big league level. And I remember at one point I called Kevin and I said, remember all those conversations we had where we used to, you know, um, strategize about, you know, could Kevin, uh, could Jacob ever make the majors? That kind of thing. I mean, 
I have watched that story uh, really close, and it, it's a very cool story. From everything I heard, he did a great job as a father, and Jacob is very, very well-liked from everything I hear. I can tell you this. Um, I'm shocked that Kevin's arm didn't fall off for all the batting practice that he uh, threw to Jacob over the years. Um, th- there's some very cool stories. Uh, I can remember one Kevin told me when Jacob's Brentwood Academy team won the state title. When the final out was made, he was sitting up in the bleachers in an area kind of by himself, and the umpire saw him and threw in the baseball. And, you know, that 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 ended up making the final out. And Kevin was so excited about having that baseball. You know, I remember him telling me about that. There were just some very cool things that went on that, that he allowed me to, to know during all that time that I just wish more people had been able to see that side of him because, you know, he, he's been a great friend to me. I'll just say that. You're not the only person I've ever heard say those things about him. And I thought in a press conference setting after games, I thought he was really good for the most part. I thought he answered questions honestly. I thought he had a sense of humor. Now, you were always a little concerned that the temper could get triggered and you you were careful in how you phrased your questions. But it just has always been a mystery to me why he cannot connect point A from where you were with him to point B out in the public, and I just always wondered if that goes differently, what's the story of Vanderbilt basketball today? Well, I still think that the uh, the whole 15-year kind of deal, it got Jeff Fisher, it got Barry Trotz, both of whom were immensely popular in this community, and yet at the end, it just sort of gets stale. Look, nobody was happier to see Barry Trotz win a Stanley Cup title than I was. Here's a guy that, um, you know, two days after the Predators fired him as a favor to me and Willie and Darren, he came out to the studio and did the show with us. And I remember very early saying, you remember the first time you and I met? And it was out at Titans training camp at Tennessee State. The Preds had just hired Barry Trotz. And, um, and they brought him out there. And, you know, we both looked at each other like, who the hell are you? <laughs> and 16 years later, you know, we got to be friends and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And I've come to the conclusion now watching these three cases that, you know, the, the day of a coach being able to stay anywhere, whether it's professionally or collegiately, for 35 years, Krzyzewski's going to be the last one of those. Yeah, and and maybe Tim Corbin. We'll see how that goes. Yeah, it's a little bit like the three hundred game winner in baseball. We're not right. seeing more. Of those. No, no, no more in our lifetimes for sure. But backing up again to David Williams because I think this does come full circle to basketball now. Okay, again they years ago I, I think we both say it would have been better for everybody had they moved on for, from David. I wonder how David's health would have gone. Uh, but they didn't, and so it all ended kind of ugly, sparked by the thing that, that hit the papers a year and a half ago. So you fast forward, Malcolm Turner takes over, uh, but in between in the search, it was interesting to me because I kept hearing, well, Vanderbilt's going to look for people at like-minded institutions and those sorts of things, um, and they had some really good candidates interested. I know that Rob Mullins at Oregon – would have killed to have that job. I don't think he even got an interview. Uh, they had some other candidates out there. Boo Corgan at one point had the job until he didn't. And and what happened there is a mystery. And all of a sudden, they take a hard turn to Malcolm Turner, who's never worked in college sports, never been an AD. Uh, and that sets the stage for he comes in on, I think, February the 7th, fires Bryce Drew a month and a half later. Well, he's not been in that world long enough to make connections I mean, I'm not saying he didn't have any, but maybe not like he would have had he waited a year. So where he settled is what most of us do. It's the people you know, the people you're comfortable with. He hires Jerry Stackhouse, who had been a G League coach, had never coached at the college level, and that comes with its own demands of things. 
And again, that all just goes back to who's in charge setting the stage for who was hired. And I wonder what might have happened if, if the AD hire had gone differently. Well, first of all, um, I'm impressed with Malcolm Turner. Uh, I think if he's given half a chance, and I'm not sure whether he's going to be or not, uh, that he at least, I think he's figured out what the problems are. And he's got a bunch of them. Now, I think the question is, okay, he's about to tell the board of trust, here are the things I need to do to fix this stuff, to get us competitive, to get us, you know, even to a point of, of being in the discussion. What I don't know is, is the board of trust going to give him what he needs to do the job the way it needs to be done as far behind everybody else as they are? I don't have that answer. I, I know my suspicion, which is a little on the cynical side, and it's a little bit of I'll believe it when I see it, but I think Malcolm Turner knows what he's doing. Uh, I don't think he made the decision on Derek Mason. I think it was made for him. My suspicion, and I'm going to stick with this until I find out I'm wrong, is that the interim chancellor wouldn't sign off on the buyout. But going back to Bryce Drew, I don't believe when I first met Malcolm Turner, I know that he was really conflicted about what to do. You know, he walks in and a problem that he shouldn't have had to deal with had gotten really way out of control. I mean, who would have, who would have believed in January that that team was going to go oh for 2018. And so all of a sudden he's dealing with a problem that he had no idea when he walked in, he was going to have to deal with. And he made a tough call. Now, whether it ends up being the right call or not, who knows? You know, Bryce Drew may go on down the road. You know, I don't think he'll end up in broadcasting for very long. I think he'll get back in coaching, and he may do well somewhere else. He may have learned some things out of this experience and go on to, to have a really good coaching life. I'm just not convinced that Malcolm Turner walked in going, the first thing I'm going to do is get rid of a basketball coach and bring in my buddy Jerry Stackhouse. I don't think he knew when he took the job that it was that big a problem. By the time he made the decision, I think most people agreed with him that he needed to make a change. Now, the part that's tricky is he goes to somebody that he's got a lot of knowledge of and everybody says, well, you know, he went to, to his strength, which was G League, and now he's sort of, you know, in a little bit of a Jerry Jones, Jimmy Johnson kind of deal. He, he's sort of tied to, to Stackhouse a little bit. And the early returns on Stackhouse, I think they're playing hard. They seem to really try hard. They don't have any talent. They, they just don't have nearly enough talent. And so then it's going to come down to can Jerry Stackhouse recruit? And the early returns on that question are pretty mixed. Thank you for making my point for me. I didn't phrase the intro to your take there very well. My point was not that I don't think he is going to be a bad idea. I think he's probably maybe exactly the guy they need, but it just – the way that whole situation went down, you know, again, when your AD is poorly run for years, sometimes you get dropped into messes that you're not ready for. And just the timing of that hire juxtaposed with where the basketball program was at that point put him in a really difficult spot. Here's where it's going to get goofy. And I hope I'm wrong about this. It's obvious that he spent a lot of time putting a plan together that I believe he's going to take to the board of trust in February. Now, the, the hope is that this board of trust is a little more athletic minded than some others in the past that didn't know if a football was pumped or stuffed, you know, but what happens if they don't buy into his plan? 
Yeah, that's then, what I'm worried then about. Then you're at ground. Yeah, yeah, then you're at ground zero. Well, and, and that's just not a place they can afford to be. I have the concerns that you have too. I think Jerry Stackhouse is a pretty good basketball coach, but again, a lot of times. Life is is part of what you make of it and part of your circumstances. As you pointed out, his circumstances are not that good. I don't think recruiting is his strong suit. I don't think it is his passion. But I don't see a way out of this current mess without them getting better players. I mean, I look at that team and I say, they got a superstar in Neesmith. They've got a good player in Saban Lee. They've got a good offensive player in Scottie Pippen. they got a player in Dylan Dessou who I think will develop Boy, from there, Matt Moyer, Max Evans, probably guys that are better placed on maybe Mac rosters or something like that. They just have a lot of parts after that. This is a roster that needs upgrading, and they need to upgrade quickly, but I think they put so many eggs in that coaching basket with who they hired. That's the part where I'm having trouble seeing this getting better soon, especially if they lose Neesmith next year. Oh, that would be uh, that would be a real blow to them. Look, you, you've just said it all. This is all going to come down to recruiting, and if they don't recruit well, this thing is going to bottom out. My hope is that he can recruit. If he can't, they're in deep doo doo. Going back to to where I started with stuff happening years ago, just setting the trajectory for where things are now, where things go forward for a while. I just keep thinking about that extension that David gave Mason out the door two years ago and the bind that's put them in right now. Yeah, that's uh, that's the way it looks right now. And I always throw out this one little addendum or caveat. Derek Mason has proven me wrong before. At the end of his first year here, I thought he was totally overmatched. I didn't really think he knew what he was doing, and he proved me wrong and give him credit for that. And now if he wants to keep this job, he's probably going to have to prove me and a bunch of other people wrong again. Right now, I don't see it. I don't think anybody sees it. Well, and they lost the best offensive player on their roster yesterday. Devin Cochran is now on the transfer portal, which is going to make it even tougher. I'm just trying to see a path forward in the next couple of years for both these programs. It's getting difficult for me to see them bailing out of these tailspins that they are in right now within the next couple of years. Yeah, I mean, I think it's... um fun and sane and pray for baseball yes that's that's a really good way to put it am i being overly pessimistic here because Derek has been able to save his bacon just when you think it's not going to happen but honest to god unless they are a juggernaut on the defensive side the next couple years breaking a new freshman quarterback next year or, or a juco or whoever it's going to be and we just went over basketball that's the difficulty I find in this job right now. And I think that's kind of really what I'm getting at. Right now in the present, it is really hard to give people encouragement about what's going on. But then you look at the dynamics and how that plays out into the near future, and it becomes difficult to explain credibly how this gets better. Always leave me with the possibility that you were wrong, but I'm trying to see in the future a little bit. It's just getting harder for me to, to visualize. Well, that that's part of why they make you play the game is about the time we all believe we know, sometimes we end up not knowing. All of the evidence right now that's out there is this is going to be a really long basketball season. Uh, You hit the nail on the head. They've got four players who at least have certain pieces of SEC quality, and that's about it, and that's not enough. You you can't win playing that way. At some point, you have no depth, and in that league, you're going to need some. I don't see it. I, I don't see that this can be anything it may not be oh and whatever the number was oh oh for 20 but it's not going to be you know nine and seven in the league 
you know, on the bubble for an NCAA tournament. If that happens, then you know what? Then Jerry Stackhouse needs to change his name to Naismith. Well, and speaking of Naismith, let's let's go close alphabetically to Naismith. Uh, sometimes you see a team that's just carried by one player, and my goodness, he looks like some nights he's good enough to do that for them, but yet they keep losing these SMU-type games, uh, which <laughs> you're going to have to win more than your share of those to have it be much of a season. Well, part of what they run into is that coaches on the other side are smart too. And, you know, they do film study and they realize that, okay, it's Neesmith and then who knows what else, you know, Saban Lee to a certain point. I said this before the season started, when they get into SEC play, Neesmith and Saban Lee would have to score in the 40-point range combined, 40, 45 points on particular nights where they would have a chance to win. They're not going to get any points inside. I think we've got a pretty good idea that their inside game is, you know, just this side of non-existent. So I'm going to stick with what I threw out there early. That's what they're going to have to do if they're going to get any real meaningful wins in the league. That's what's going to have to happen. You ready for the mailbag? Absolutely. The mailbag is sponsored by Vanderbilt fan and independent insurance agent Josh Minton of Brentwood. Are you in the market for auto, motorcycle, home, renters, or landlord insurance? What about life or commercial insurance? Call Josh at 615-933-1979. Email him at josh at hqinsurance.com. Follow him at facebook.com forward slash jdmintonhq. He's my insurance agent. Hope you'll make him yours. Dorking says, as the SMU finish calls for concern, seems like we collapsed many times last season at the end of games. Bottom line is, unless something changes dramatically, this team is going to be up to Jerry Stackhouse to see that those things are happening, call a timeout, uh, maybe earlier than you normally would to try to stop that kind of thing. But, you know, there's too much evidence that they can go through six, seven-minute stretches where they're not going to get anything done on offense. Yeah, it's a cause for concern uh, because in the SEC, that six- or seven-minute stretch will guarantee you get beat. Well, it was just so reminiscent of how they got beat in early to mid-January last year when they had a chance for their season not to be a disaster. I mean, it was never going to be good after Garland was gone. But I don't think anybody was thinking 0 for 18 at that point. And then they lose the South Carolina game. They lose the Tennessee game. Now, there were some bad breaks in there, too. And I guess you could always say the same thing for the SMU game. Maybe a three-pointer doesn't fall in there somewhere. They walk out a winner in regulation. But my concern is now they go to Auburn. That's probably not going to be a confidence booster which makes A&M a game that they really need to win uh, because if they don't, that's the worst team in the conference right now. If they don't pick one up there, then I think you have to start worrying really about a spiral. I mean, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I look at the schedule, that's how I see it sort of playing out. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I'm, I'm right there with you. Mr. Vandy says, what do you think of the football staff changes that have been made so far? I'm pleasantly surprised about the roof hire. The offensive coordinator deal, I want to be fair about. I watched La Tech in Miami in the bowl game, partly because my buddy Wes Durham was doing the game on ESPN. It's the most awful bowl game that has ever been played. And Miami was pathetic. And frankly, La Tech wasn't much better. And, um, I didn't come away from that going, whoopee, man, we're going to get the, the La Tech offensive coordinator because I didn't see much out of them either. But I want to be fair about it. That's not a fair judgment of him. And I didn't see La Tech enough through the season to be able to say, okay, is does he have some innovative, you know, creative skills? Uh, they didn't show much against Miami, but they didn't need to. The Miami thing was pathetic. 
the way that I view football for next year is a lot like the way that I viewed basketball year. I've just said that you want to see some development, some growth, some evidence of good coaching. The bar for success has always been low. Again, based on the season so far, I don't think that that I can really criticize the job that Jerry Stackhouse has done. You just knew that he was going to really have to coach them up to some wins they weren't supposed to get. That hasn't happened so far. Football, I kind of see similarly. I don't expect them to have a very good season. I don't know why they would, again, unless the defense just becomes dominant. Uh, And that's defense that did look good at times, but let's keep in mind, Ole Miss also ran for 400 yards against them. Eric Gray ran for, I think, 230. So there's some pretty significant holes there. My thing for football is let's see some improvement. Let's see some development of some young players. My concern is when they are going to put the offense on a newcomer, a quarterback, whether that be the, the Juco kid, whether that be Ken Seals, whether that be Mike Wright, you just hope that the kid physically survives, uh, and if he does, he doesn't get his confidence ruined. That's just a tough spot for a freshman to come into. Well, I'm going to take it a, a, a maybe a different way. There wasn't anything fun about Vanderbilt football this year, and this guy holds the key the new hire to making Vanderbilt football fun. Vanderbilt fans are pretty realistic and they don't put the expectations that a lot of SEC schools do on their people. No matter what Vanderbilt football needs to start to be fun because there wasn't anything fun about it this year. You know, there wasn't a a ton of creativity to it. This guy needs to understand that they're in the entertainment business and they're they're competing for entertainment dollars and they need Vanderbilt football needs to be fun. You know, I think back to the way James Franklin took over in 2011 and I did not any way shape or form think that was a bowl team. I don't think most people did either. You remember their first few games, a lot of them were close games. They played UConn close. I think Casey Hayward had a big pick, maybe a pick six late in the game that that kind of was the deciding factor in that. But one thing James did is he would do some things. He would run some fake punts or some gimmick plays and just enough of those to get them some wins and get them some confidence and make it fun. I think that's what they have to do next year because I think you have nailed it yourself. It's one thing to be bad. It's another thing to be bad and put the fans to sleep, and that was a big problem with last year. Absolutely. It got to a point where even the most diehard people didn't want to watch it. I remember watching the the Tennessee game and at one point saying, why am I even watching this? They can't do the simplest things on offense. You know, I used to say they they can't walk and chew gum. And, and, and that was kind of the way I felt. And, And unfortunately for me, it just brought flashbacks to the Damian Allen era. (laughs) which if you're the broadcaster that is not a lot of fun well uh, Damian Allen never had a Keyshawn Vaughn in his backfield either no and this is where where I blame them because they had proven pieces You, you brought up Keyshawn Vaughn but there's also Pinkney and Kalijah Lipscomb and you know one of the things that needed to be asked was why are they in the witness protection program? Why, why are we not seeing them? And the answer, I think, was because I don't think they knew what they were doing. This is just one of the reasons I'm just so skeptical, right? Is is I look back, and, and somebody told me this two years ago. This ended up being very on point. And by the way, we'll get through this and one more, another question or two, and I'll let you go. He said to me, he said, I think that you're going to look back at 2018 and say that team should have done more than it did. He said, I think this team's a lot more talented than people realize. And you look at it, they they were using an All-American tight end, an All-American caliber running back, and an All-American or an All-SEC caliber wide receiver a lot, and still the best they got to was six and seven. And you could argue that those guys, some of them were underutilized early year, especially Vaughn. But I get back to that and go, even when he had the players, that's the best he did. And the other part of that was you got to get it pretty right at Vanderbilt. You can't leave a lot of gaping holes. 
And the defensive side of the ball that year, frankly, was not very good. And it's just, again, it's it's with Vanderbilt, you got to get most of it right. And just his inability to do that, there's always a, a big hole somewhere that needs to be plugged. That's something that they've they've got to get over, and I just hadn't seen proof of it so far. Well, if you remember, and I know you do, and, and I can't put all the specifics together, there were two or three endings of games that they lost that they shouldn't have. Okay, they had Florida on the ropes here and, you know, watched it go down the drain. They were basically a couple of yards away from winning at Missouri and didn't close that deal. There's one more, and I can't think of what it was, but that team had a chance to get up into the James Franklin stratosphere, and they botched some scenarios where it looked to me like they didn't quite know how to win. And then, to their credit, they put it all together when it mattered the most and, you know, absolutely blasted Tennessee here. If they had played that way all year long, they probably would have gone better than six and seven. Let's see. Ann Arbor Door asked a good one. After being a failure at Ole Miss, Ed Orgeron is now playing for a national championship. He seems to have been helped by quality coordinators and consultants. With good coordinators, what is he ceiling for Mason? I think where Orgeron deserves his most, if he did it on his own or somebody in and said, look, let's cut the crap here. You keep trying to run into this crimson wall, and you're not getting anywhere. The, the problem at LSU had been that people knew that they had massive talent at LSU, but they were kind of in a Neanderthal, or as I love to call it, Cro-Magnon offensive mindset of just run up the middle, run up the middle, run up the middle, And every time they would get in a showdown game against Alabama, they'd end up losing 13 to nothing where their defense just ran out of gas. The talent was always there at LSU. Either he had to decide on his own or somebody talked him into, you have got to get into the 21st century offensively. And he got lucky in that whoever encouraged him to do it There was also a quarterback on campus that could make it fly. You know, they're also, they also got lucky uh, with Joe Brady, who turned out to, to be sort of a magical potion. If I were Mississippi state, I would force Joe Brady to turn me down right now. I don't care that he's 30 years old. He's making LSU football a ton of fun. I, I don't know how to answer the other point. I do think Roof is is a pretty good hire. I don't know what to think of the offensive coordinator at La Tech, and I want to be fair because really all I've got to base him on is, is the Miami Bowl game, which was dreadful. I don't know what level of, you know, how high can they take it with better coordinators. I just don't know how to answer that. Well, there are three things that that sort of stand out in Ed Orgeron and how he has turned this around. One of them, um, the Brady Burrow component, I I wouldn't call that dumb luck, but Joe Burrow was not nearly as highly regarded coming into LSU as, as he's going to be leaving LSU. I mean, he couldn't get playing time at Ohio State. Of course, that's also a team that usually has got some quarterback talent. So there's that. Uh, so there was sort of the... I guess the planets aligning component with his his coordinator with Brady and with Burrow. So there's that. The other thing that I always hear is that he learned to let his coordinators do their jobs and and not micromanage enough. Some people would say that's fair criticism of, of Derek too, especially in, in terms of meddling in the offense and not letting them go tempo and and things like that. So I think that's a point of application that a coach could learn from. The the other one, and this is where I see the departure, and obviously LSU is a 
much different atmosphere. It's got a history of success. It's got a rabid, passionate fan base. It's got facilities that Vanderbilt does not have. But Ed Orgeron's reputation was always that he really got after it in recruiting. I mean, really outworked a lot of people. And Derek is light years from being there, to be honest. Well, Orgeron's recruiting back then was, you know, when he was at Ole Miss, there were a lot of SEC schools uh, that, you know, went to the conference office saying, are you watching what they're doing? You know, I think Orgeron, first of all, you know, I wonder what USC thinks now that they didn't hire him because they had the opportunity to do it. I just think somewhere in here, somebody got to him and said, if you're going to keep this job long-term, you're going to have to open up your offense because too many people know the secret. And the secret is LSU had damn good talent everywhere. And they needed somebody to get them into the 21st century, you know, and, and stop playing, you know, Think about all those CBS nighttime primetime games, Alabama at LSU. The crowd would be going nuts. And the missing thing was LSU never brought any offense to the table. Well, now look at how that game got played this year in Tuscaloosa. LSU brought plenty of offense. It, it they talked him into something or he talked himself into if I'm going to keep this job, I'm going to have to get with the program. Boy, you think Jarvis Landry and Odell Beckham ever look back at LSU and go, man, I wish I could have played with Joe Burrow? Sure, look, a bunch of them do. Um, You know, I've got a couple of friends that played at LSU, uh, Matt Mock being one of them who won a national title. He was the quarterback that won under Saban. You know, they all believed that if, if somebody would just turn this thing loose, that LSU had the talent. The the talent, the recruiting, was never a question at LSU. It was always, are they ever going to get out of the dark ages? And now that they have, look out, because I think they're going to win a national title. Yeah, I, I think they are too. Although that game with Clemson is going to be fascinating because Clemson has the history of handling that kind of stage. And, and every now and then you see a really good defense is able to make an elite offense look very pedestrian. That's the thing that I'm watching for. Yeah, my my biggest reason that I think LSU is going to win is because it's on their home field. You know, if, if that game is played, uh, let's say, in Columbia, South Carolina, I might have a little different feel. New Orleans is hardly a neutral site. And I'm saying that having attended the LSU-Ohio State national title game 12 or 13 years ago, I've seen what it can look like in that Superdome. And Clemson's got a real fight on their hands to beat that. That is going to be a circus atmosphere. I'd love to be there. Buy me a ticket. (laughs) <laughs> Me and you both will we'll make the drive down there. Although I've done that before. I went down for the Sugar Bowl the year Florida and Florida State played in the national title game. That was a long haul. Yeah, it's an eight-hour drive. I did it for the LSU-Alabama national title game. I was off the air. I'd left 104.5 at the time, and I was serving what was a nine-month non-compete. And so I went to that game, and – I will give Alabama all the credit in the world. Number one, their fan base uh, equaled it out a lot more than I thought anybody could, and then their defense just absolutely stifled LSU. I don't think LSU ever crossed midfield in that game. Yeah, that's the way I remember it, too. All right, last question. I'll get you out of here. View Superior says, what were your favorite home and away games you called as Vanderbilt's radio announcer? I loved going to LSU. Uh, Tiger Stadium is the coolest thing at night that I ever got to uh, to experience. I would say going to Rupp Arena uh, in basketball was that, that and getting to do an NCAA tournament game. We played Xavier up at the Palace at Auburn Hills in Detroit. But going to Rupp Arena was always a lot of fun. 
because it always felt like big league basketball. Um, you know, you got 23,000 and it was always a chance that a little bit of a reunion with coach Newton, who always seemed to have something in store for me uh, when I would go up there. George, I appreciate your time. I will return the favor on your show today, this being Tuesday. Appreciate you joining us for a podcast that went longer than I planned it to go, but uh, these things seem to happen when we get together. Tell people where they can find your show and, of course, your Twitter handle, which you've actually got, I believe, two of them now, if I'm correct. Yeah, and I'm not sure I know the the other one. We're starting to use Twitter. People can um, – actually, I do know. Probably shouldn't say it because I'm not sure I've got the right words. My Twitter is George Plaster TN. I think the uh, Twitter for the show is George Plaster Show. I think I'm right about that. Anyway, it- I'm on uh, I'm on WNSR, which is 560 on the AM dial uh, and 95.9 on FM every day, uh, Monday through Friday, 2 to 4. They, if that's not the right Twitter handle, people can just search it in the search bar on Twitter and it'll, it'll pop up. So anyway, George, thank you for joining us. We'll catch you next week. If you so. He's George Plaster. Sorry about the interference there. I'm Chris Lee. Thank you for listening. We will catch you again next week.